Our modern understanding of big data and the increasingly sophisticated tools we have for analyzing them have opened up whole new worlds for exploration and sometimes whole new avenues for the misuse of data, which has led some to wonder who should be responsible or held accountable for data misuse or data bias. That's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me are panelists John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, Professor Emeritus of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Sharna Parkey. Parkey is lead data scientist at Cascada, where she works on the company's product team to deliver a commercially available data platform for machine learning. Her interests include analysis of data language patterns, as well as using data science to combat systemic oppression. She has over 15 years experience in enterprise data science and adaptive algorithms in the defense and startup tech sectors, and has worked with dozens of Fortune 500 companies in her work as a data scientist. She's also authored a piece, Who is Accountable for Data Bias for Chance? Sharna, thank you so much for being here today. Super excited to be with you. I guess just to start off, why write this article? Yeah, I mean, it's something that I've been struggling with as a data scientist personally for most of my career. You know, every time you're in a business and you're trying to apply some form of science, there's this tension between getting something out the door that's good enough and actually making sure that the thing that you're releasing isn't going to hurt people. Um, And so you always are having to motivate, you know, can I have enough time to test for these different types of biases? I I always like to to look at these titles and try to deconstruct them. So this is, I'm going to channel Richard, and and, uh, this is my literary assessment. We're in trouble now. That's got both of them just laughing at me now. Now they know we're doomed. So... (laughs) So, Sharna, I got a question about, you, you talk about kind of who's accountable for data bias. So could you tell yeah. us, what do you mean by by data bias? And mm-hmm. then wh- when you say it was accountable for, what what do you mean by that as well? Yeah, so it's it's a challenge to deconstruct this. And it's it took me several times to even get this title the way that I, I wanted it. Because in the end, data is something that we collect. Data is also something that we transform and try to make information out of. But even like the machine learning models that I create produce data and then they go into other systems. And so it to me, the data itself is something that we observe in the world, but it's also something that we transform, manipulate and use. And then for accountability. Yeah. So accountability to me you know, people want to know who to blame often when something goes wrong. But accountability is more than that, right? Uh, To be accountable to something, you need to actually make an accounting of it. You have to be able to say, you know, this is what I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it. And here's what happened. The only way to actually hold someone accountable is to inspect that accounting. And so we run into these issues about transparency and who's watching who, who's making sure this is actually correct when people are saying that it is. Um, and so that question of accountability uh, is a big one for me. 
So just as a quick follow-up, just before I, I turn this over to Richard or, and Rosemary. So, you know, as, as part of this, when you were talking about data, I love the ideas that you were expanding it to beyond just something we collect or observe, but something yeah. that we might transform, something that we might be producing as well mm -hmm. as part of this, this, this data science activity. So yep. tell us about then adding bias to this. When you say data bias, I assume yeah. that there's some bias possibly in each of those components as you describe them. Oh, absolutely. So there's bias everywhere. We all, I mean, there's some big cognitive biases chart. There's like a hundred and some odd number of them, right? So there is no version of us observing, collecting, transforming without uh, putting our own subjective uh, taint on something. And so, you know, you end up looking at bias uh, both in the broad sense that is where is something more represented or underrepresented than another thing? Is it, are we accurately reflecting what we're observing? Uh, but you also turn into bias when you're talking about specific demographics and protected classes, right? So you can introduce bias into your data by collecting demographics and not checking to see whether or not you're accurately representing populations, but you can also introduce bias by not collecting and refusing to check that information. So how how big is this problem? Yeah, so the problem is massive and it's, it's a dynamic problem. So this isn't something where you can solve for it once and it's fixed. Right. So, you know, because we are observing the data that we are collecting is observations of people and their behavior or something in the world and its behavior, time passes and the world changes. You know, we can see this in the way that, you know, gender is fluid, right? We can identify as male, female, or non binary now, but that wasn't a construct long ago. That's not a word that existed. So even in the way that we understand the world changes. And so to me, that means, you know, we have to continuously understand what we're doing with these models and with these biases. What does the general public need to know about this that they don't know now? I mean, this is something that's not circulating very much in in the in newspapers and media, I, I suspect. And uh, I, I would I would think this is kind of a hidden problem to the general public. Yeah, I mean, it, it's in general, you know, it, in the tech space, it's well covered. You know, every time I write an article about it, you know, I, I talk to a publisher and they're like, well, can you give a slightly different angle? We've already talked about this before. Uh, can you make it practical instead of this conceptual conversation? But for the general public, I would say that there's a couple of headlines that you may have seen recently um, that kind of should make you a little bit worried to know that it's so perva pervasive. Um, so with COVID-19, you know, we've been putting out all of these maps and numbers and trying to understand how, you know, is it safe to go outside? How are the numbers changing? What are the infection rates, et cetera? And each state is doing this differently. One of the recent headlines you may have seen is about a um, Florida data scientist who was asked to manipulate data about COVID cases that the public was using to understand if their kids should go back to school, if they should be reopening businesses. And she was fired for refusing to manipulate the data in the way that the state wanted. And so what you need to know is that this is possible 
in every course of your life and you need to know that you can ask questions about it and you can be part of a system of accountability you know if you're denied a credit card application or something like that it's a lot easier to um, go back and say hey tell me why this happened but you should be doing this in other ways too if you're denied health care for example you should be pushing to understand why because there could be an algorithm behind that decision do, do you wonder if the the uh, so if you follow up on this if the person that's denying it doesn't understand the algorithm i mean or that you know I, I sometimes wonder about the complexity of some of the underlying algorithms and if they would be you know kind of a a black box to even the person that's doing the implementation and decision making and not even appreciate kind of all the inputs into them that might lead to such a, a you know a rejection for a loan or whatever yeah, so it is entirely possible that the first person that you talk to when you're trying to understand what happened will not know why you were denied and you're going to get some sort of a, a script that says, you know, here's the factors that we consider and they don't know what the algorithm actually does with it. But th what you're doing is actually putting a flag in the system. So all of our data is labeled and I'm a data scientist. And so when I use that data in order to build a new algorithm, I need a label. And when something is flagged as incorrect, that's incredibly important to me as a data scientist. And so even if that person you're talking to initially doesn't understand the algorithm, that label is going to make it back into the system. Um, this is what triggers something we call human in the loop. So if there is something in these critical systems like healthcare, like financial applications, where there's a possibility something is incorrect it needs to be escalated to a human and it needs to go through a review process I love that phrase human in the loop because it reminds me because I feel like a lot of the conversations we have around AI and machine learning and various kinds of, of new technologies there's this discourse that the technology will save us right that that if we just program it smartly enough that we can erase bias and that we can you know we'll live in a world where you know things will be imagined fairly but I don't, I'm sure that human in the loop doesn't respond to this, but I always think about the fact that, but there are humans who are programming all of these things, right? And who are building the architectures and the infrastructures. And so I wonder, like, as you're thinking about this issue of bias, like, how do we have this conversation in a way where we acknowledge the human beings who are involved in this, who are fallible, but do it in a way that doesn't, like, create, like, defensiveness? Because I feel like that's a cop that... As soon as you raise bias in conversations around technology, there it seems like these, you know, hackles go up and people get very uncomfortable. And I wonder how do we have this conversation in a way that is fruitful and actually gets us to the to where we want to be. Yeah, I it's partly I think around transparency. So oftentimes hackles generally get all up in arms and stuff when it's threatening PR of a company, like it's giving them a bad name and the brand a bad name. And so part of the challenge here is that we aren't talking about it, that we aren't just exposing the information. Um, when you, as a business, commit to transparency, when you say, hey, we know that we're human and we know that we're fallible, here's the data, here's what's happening. We want everyone to take a look at how we're doing and if you catch something please let us know we want to do better that's a very different conversation than you need to ask the right question to get the right answer like i we are in that world right now in most cases and it 
drives me absolutely crazy because there's sort of this these sets of spheres as a data scientist I know that this is a statistical game I know that statistics is not certainty and I want to update things but there are business repercussions for how these conversations are handled. And so there are layers and layers and layers on top of the individual data scientists that prevent the conversations from happening. So how do we peel those back? So can you give, uh, you know, you talked about kind of committing to transparency as a business. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about what that would look like. Yeah. What does that, what does that mean? And, and can, you know, if, if a company were to do this. Right. Help me understand that. Yeah, so there's a couple of examples of, of how this transparency can come about. Um, I think the Federal Trade Commission had released a blog uh, maybe on the 19th or so about telling the truth about how you use your data. Um, you know, it's, it's not just that you are internally monitoring how your models are making predictions. So in the case of healthcare and you are using it to triage which person is ill enough to get the most health care. You know, we're seeing this right now. There's not enough hospital beds in different parts of the world in order to give a ventilator to someone who has COVID at different stages. So how do you decide who to give the care to? And, you know, this has been a challenge forever. Um, humans were making this decision by themselves in the past, um, you know, in a war zone. Who do you give the care to, right? And so... This transparency in that case can look like publishing anonymized information. You can say, here are the number of people who came to us for care. Here's, you know, information about who came in and here's who we gave care to. Here's how we triaged it and actually letting people inspect. That's OK. It's not as good as making it human readable for the general public. Just releasing the data is one level of transparency. In order to be transparent to all different people, you have to actually give the analysis of that. You know, be, be doing it, the analysis yourself. I think our, our CEO likes to say, you know, it's one thing for you to be telling your peers what you're doing and you know, I measure our product metrics and how people are using the platform. I can do that all day and I can give them access to a dashboard. But if I don't tell them, hey, this is my analysis of what happened and proactively communicate it, then it's not really transparent. It's requiring them to have the same skills that I do. You're listening to Stats and Stories. And today we're talking about data bias with Sharna Parkey. Sharna, I have a, a comment and a question. One of the things I loved about your chance article was the food metaphor. <laughs> yeah. I hadn't I hadn't thought about data as uh, expiration dates or yeah. data going stale. Mm-hmm. Um, and I imagine I think all of us have probably quoted data that's really out of date. And yeah. uh, can you talk about that and the the, the problem that that poses? Absolutely. Uh, I love food. I cook all of the time. I, I say that I'm a, a collector of hobbies. And so all different kinds of food, you know, is, is part of that as well. Um, and I absolutely think of this as data is a part of an ingredient 
that makes something happen. And so you can think of, you might have 10 different ingredients to make a spinach lasagna. And if the spinach itself is bad, then the entire dish is going to end up bad. You can't have nine good ingredients and then use one that's like rotting and expired and expect a good outcome, (laughs) right? So for me, the the monitoring and understanding of when something is going stale is at every level. You have to look at the individual ingredients. You have to look at the output of the model and you have to look at what's producing those ingredients. So, you know, if there's a recall on tomatoes because there's salmonella from this particular grocery store, then you need to go back and be like, okay, where did I get my tomatoes from? And then understand that might impact what's happening to you. Does a, uh, an example jump out at you that uh, data that you've seen that was stale has gone bad and, and maybe a company can profit by using old data. They don't want to update it. It's, it's, it's not in their interest to update the data because the old data works better for them. Yeah, um, there are many cases of this. So uh, some of the most uh, interesting cases I've seen are around employment, where companies are attempting to understand, especially you know if you're the size of Amazon or Google and you've got so many thousands of applications and maybe you hire 1% of those people, how do you make it through the volume of people so that you can get the most qualified folks into the jobs, into the seats that you need in order to make um, your products and services? A lot of this data that's being collected can become stale because your business needs have changed. You know, maybe I have an applicant tracking system. This is a common thing. You you have an applicant tracking system. You have the job post someone applied to, the words that were used, like what they needed to be qualified for. And then you've got who applied. Maybe there were 100 people for this one application. You've got demographics. You've got the schools they came from, et cetera. And so... There are many problems with this, but if we're talking just about stale data, you know, the job itself could change. So you still have the same title. I'm a software engineer too. That's what I'm hiring for. But five years ago, you needed two years of experience and these particular languages. And today, you know, things are changing so quickly and that this person, instead of needing deep experience in one topic, needs broad experience in five topics. So When I use the data from the past to try to pre-qualify people when they apply, stack rank them, oh, look at these 10, but not at these 10, it is already stale. You know, the the role changed, the people changed, the, the industry changed, and it's dangerous to continue to use past information. But it may be necessary for that single business. If, if you only have a thousand jobs and only a hundred people per job, that's a relatively small data set to build your own model. But you can get around this by aggregating data across other companies, but that's risky, right? So you wanna have the cutting edge of your own business to get the most qualified people and you want your business to succeed, but you don't wanna share it with other people, but we have to find a way to do that. You know, I, I, I like this as well, this image of, of kind of shelf life of data. 
But in some yeah. ways, what you're talking about is, does do, do you have a sample that, that represents a population of interest to you anymore as well? I mean, sort of there's yeah. there's other ways that, that I also think about this, but this is kind of cool. You you know, so that was part of your, when you were talking about phases of machine learning, you yeah. had talked about data collection, and that's where you brought up this issue. You also mm -hmm. talked about feature engineering as a second phase, and then model training, validation, and production as a third phase, and lastly, impact. Mm -hmm. Can can you talk about kind of how how this this idea of bias kind of is 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 infused into these other components or how it might be observed? Yeah, absolutely. So I think of all of these phases as a life cycle. So it's a circle. Impact is impacting not you're not just measuring the impact of what your algorithm did to a person, like the consequences of it, but also how their behavior changed and changed your input. So, you know, all of the models that we are building, all of the products that we put out in the world, their purpose is behavior change. You know, we aren't just trying to keep the status quo, <laughs> you know? Um, and so what comes into play here, especially in the impact section is ethics, right? If your intent is to change behavior, is there an ethical reason for you to be able to change that behavior? And is this a way that you're allowed to change it? So there's, <laughs> there's a whole slew of books written on this topic about ethics. But if you have these gaps, if you have these intention action gaps, or you have these intention goal gaps, um, then part of that shelf life, part of that impact of bias is getting fed into your model again, because the way that you made the change happen or the way the behavior that you decided to change um, impacts your model in the future. And this one's a little bit harder to describe just in words. It's not just what you're doing that impacts the, all of the other phases. It's what other people are doing. So you can think of an example here is Cambridge Analytica and how they were using data to change the way that people are voting on issues and who gets into office. Now, a completely different system um, may be measuring voter behavior to understand how they should be marketing different issues, whether they're progressive issues or not. And that Cambridge Analytica behavior change is impacting other systems and possibly your data, probably your data as well. So, you know, there's there are a lot of phases and there are a lot of different kinds of um, impact here, but I, I think that they're all interconnected. One of the phrases I learned from the Chance article was ethics washing. <laughs> can you talk can you talk about that a little bit and give an example? Yeah, you may. I mean, I I see this a lot because I read all of these uh, statements that companies put out and the new policies, and I'm trying to understand all of the time, like what what is the common practice and how far can we push it to get to where I want people to be. Um, so part of what ethics washing is, it begins with a company saying, okay. In order for us to be ethical, we are going to post a set of policies and promises on our website. And that is putting a sort of coat of paint on top of, you know, making people believe this is what we do. But if it's not actually what is being done, if it hasn't been implemented yet, if they aren't following through on those practices, or if they say, 
fire someone who's in charge of their ethics team when they claim that they have these ethical practices, this is a form of ethics washing. It's it's trying to get us to believe that that's what they're doing and it's not actually what's happening. So I have a, a question about who's who's the one that's that's accountable. You know, so, you know, so <laughs> just you, a small, small just question, a, a little John. small question, you know, just just in the spirit of this. So, you know, you talked about this idea. There's there are the individuals that are working in these environments. They're working mm-hmm. for some entity that's mm-hmm. some larger you know, gr- group. So so what do you think about kind of this issue of individual versus more corporate responsibility when you think about about kind of these assurances of, of trying to, to minimize the impact of these data biases. Yeah, um, I'm also going to pull academic responsibility into this as well, just because that crosses it over. Um, so uh, there's in the individual accountability realm, um, when I am personally collecting data, engineering features, building a model, etc., I believe for myself, I need to understand where that data came from. I need to personally say no if it cannot be used in the manner that I'm being asked about using it. Um, and I need to set up measurement and uh, and monitoring of my own model. I don't, I'm not going to work at a single company forever. I'm not going to maintain this one system forever. So if I make it impossible for other people to know what's happening, then I've failed my system of accountability. However, it's attention because if I work in a business, then the business may not allow me enough time or resources or effort. I may not have the tools available to me to actually set up that system of monitoring. And so, you know, I can write as many little blurbs that says, hey, this is only good for this context, for this period of time, it needs to be updated, and I can expect that business to update it, but I have no way of making them do it. You know, I've left the company, now they need to make changes. So then we take it to the next sphere of accountability. That company is selling a product that they're making Um, guarantees or assurances about this is what it does this is how it performs and if they're telling their customers hey we update this model in this way or this is how accurate it is or this is the bias that we're measuring for and they do not provide you a way to inspect that then you as a customer need to hold that business accountable for actually showing you that it is actually doing good on what it's promising, right? guarantees, et cetera. But in the academic world, it's a little different. So researchers are often looking at a problem to ask a question to advance the state of the art of a technology. So we see this in you know different algorithms that are created um, where it may or may not matter that the data itself is biased. They are attempting to prove that it is possible to build a deep learning model with, you know, as many more hyperparameters than have ever been used. And so they write a paper about how the technology is possible. They open source that data and that algorithm. But where is their responsibility to make sure that that is used for good or not? Mm-hmm. Right. So they they have a level of accountability of transparency that says you cannot just pick this up and use it 
we use this data, we know it's biased, here's the societal impacts of if you used it. Well, Sharna, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks so much. This was fun. Yeah, thanks, Sharna. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.